My name's Steve. I'm the assistant pastor here. If I haven't met you, I'd love to do so after the service. Joachim Marat was the Admiral of France during the Napoleonic Wars, and he held several other titles. Uh, he was actually married to Napoleon's sister, Caroline, so he had all sorts of different titles, and he was known as being a very valiant fighter, and this was during the days when the men were men, but they dressed like women, and he was so flamboyant in the way that he dressed, he was actually nicknamed something like the Dandy King or something like that. He... Uh, was obviously very high up in Napoleon's army. And so after Napoleon fell, he went on the run, and he fled to Corsica, where he tried to start an insurrection, but it failed, and he was arrested, tried for treason, and sentenced to death by a firing squad. When he went before the firing squad, he was offered a chair, because nobody wants your knees to buckle as you're facing death. But he refused it. He was offered a blindfold, because... Even when you're killing someone, you don't want to torture them to the point where they actually have to stare down the barrel of your guns and face death, but he refused it. He said, I have braved death too often to fear it. And being a a military commander, he was accustomed to ordering soldiers, and so he asked if he might give the order to his own firing squad, and he was obliged. He carried a small engraving of his wife, and he kissed it in his last moment, He stood up tall and straight and shouted to the men who had their rifles facing him, Soldiers, do your duty. Aim for the heart, spare the face. Fire. This is how warriors face death. Plato tells us that Socrates was sentenced to death or exile. He could either stay in Athens and die, or he could leave the city that he loved because he was found guilty of corrupting the minds of the youth. And though he was actually given an opportunity to escape, he refused. And as is vividly portrayed in the famous painting of his death, he taught his pupils that no philosopher should fear death, and he drank his poison with quietness and resolve. This is how philosophers face death. How does God face death. Our text before us this morning is an incredibly poignant moment in the life and ministry of Jesus, and in it we're going to see how God faces death. Let me read our gospel reading from Luke 22 and pray for us, and we'll begin. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. May the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God. 
I ask this morning that we would be given a fresh glimpse, not just of our sinfulness, not just of our rebellion, but of the deep love of Jesus for us. Would we leave this place reconciled to you, reconciled to one another, reconciled to all people because of the great love with which he has loved us? We ask this in his name. Amen. As you can see, we've moved back into our study of Luke. If you haven't uh, been in town for that long, we've just finished up a short series on the Psalms, but pretty much all of last year we were doing a study of Luke's gospel, and so we're now headed back into there uh, for the season of Lent. This is the first Sunday in the season of Lent, and Lent is what the Eastern Orthodox Church calls the great school of repentance. And so throughout this Lenten season, we're going to be finishing out Luke's gospel and following in the footsteps of Jesus' final moments. So this morning, I'd like us to take a step back for just a moment and remind ourselves what's been happening in Luke's storytelling. And then, sort of like an hourglass, we're going to focus in on on what Luke is telling us with this story of Jesus here, and then we're going to broaden back out to see what it means for his church and for his followers. If you were with us last fall, you'll remember that Jesus has been focused on Jerusalem. For chapters now, he and his followers have been on this journey Luke told us that that Jesus set his face toward the city, and from that moment on, his ministry takes on this new sense of urgency and resolve. And over and over again throughout this journey, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to die. And every time he does, they respond by asking if he thinks the hotel they're staying at is going to have a continental breakfast. No matter how many times he says it to them, they just don't hear it. They don't get it. And all along the way, he's been infuriating the religious establishment by pronouncing very thinly veiled judgments against them and more than insinuating that he is the long-awaited Messiah. So as they enter the city, at the beginning of Luke chapter 22, the chapter that we're looking at this morning, Jesus celebrates a final Passover meal with his disciples. The Passover celebration was a remembrance of the biggest moment in Israel's history when God came against Egypt and struck down the firstborn of Israel's enemies. The Israelites were instructed to slaughter a lamb and smear the blood of the lamb on their doorposts as a sign of atonement, a sign of substitution and faith, and God would pass over them. And he did, and then he led his people out of slavery with a mighty arm with signs and wonders, and he told them, every generation is to pass on this meal the meaning, the rich significance so that God's people would never forget his provision for them. But of course, the people forgot. They don't even get to the land that he promises them before they rebel. And time and time again, they fail to recall what God has done on their behalf in leading them out of Egypt, out of slavery, to the land he had prepared for them. And this is really the entire Old Testament storyline. It traces this up and down of rebellion and renewal until eventually God's people are told by his prophets they're going to be removed from the land he had given them by violent enemies. And God's prophets are actually given visions of God's glory rising up over the temple and moving east, leaving God's people, leaving the land, heading towards the place of God's enemies. And God's people are removed from the land. Eventually, they return, but it's under a foreign rule, and it seems as if the covenant that God made with his people is off. Perhaps it's being restored, but it's tough to tell. The Roman army is occupying their land. They're still not really God's people in God's land. 
And as Jesus celebrates this Passover meal with his disciples, this remembrance of God's covenantal promises made to his people, Jesus tells his disciples that he wanted to eat it with them one last time before his suffering began. He tells them that he is instituting a new covenant, a covenant made in the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his own body. He tells them that someone sitting at that very table would betray him to death. He tells them later that their vocal leader, Peter, would begin to deny that he even knows Jesus. And then the disciples begin to bicker among themselves as to who is the greatest. And Jesus tells them, that's how the world works, but not in this kingdom. I am the king of this kingdom, and yet I am among you as one who serves. And then Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. This was the place where the prophet saw God's glory reside after it left the temple. This was the place that Ezekiel foretold that God himself would come down and stand on this mountain and fight for his people himself. And Luke sets up for us here in this text what's called a chiasm. He uses these bookended phrases that echo each other to point us to what he's trying to get across in this episode. At the beginning and the end of this short passage, you see Jesus telling his disciples to pray that they won't fall into temptation. You can think of a chiasm sort of like an arrowhead. The two bookends are over here, but really they're pointing us towards this center idea. And at the center of this entire text, at the center of this moment, is where we see Jesus, fully God and fully man, bowed down with agony over what he is about to experience. So how does God face death? If we're left to our own ideas, I think a lot of us would want Jesus to be the courageous martyr, Sort of like Joaquin Marat, head held high, smirking at his executioners, one last drag on the cigarette, aim for the heart, boys. Others of us might want him to be the calm, collected philosopher, unflinchingly serene, using death as just one more moment to teach the unenlightened. I think most of us, though, probably want a superhero God. In fact, Many of us, despite our best efforts at orthodoxy, think of Jesus as Superman. Superman looks like Clark Kent, which is to say he looks like a regular human being, but inside he can stop bullets. That's how we think of Jesus. Even when we admit that he's fully human, we still think that somehow he doesn't feel the things that we feel. And we want him to be this superhero that can withstand all sorts of different things. And more than that, we want vindication. As the forces of evil, as those cowardly traitors move toward him, we want nothing more than for legion upon legion of angels to swoop down with the fury of God himself, destroying anyone who would dare come against the Son of God. And we want to be the ones leading the charge, running into battle, praying that the light of God's glory would blind those unworthy of looking upon him, much less laying a hand on him. But here is God in the garden, a sweaty mess of agonized emotions. Here is God on his knees. And there are some things that we've got to understand about what's going on here because this is the moment. This is the moment of all history. Scripture tells us that Christ's blood was shed from before the foundations of the earth. The Trinity had been in motion with this plan from eternity past, and yet God the Son had now entered time in a new way, and he had become fully human. Fully human. 
And despite what you may have heard, Christology is incredibly difficult. There's this narrow pathway of orthodoxy, and it's really easy to slip off into heresy on either side. You're either going to overemphasize his deity and underemphasize his humanity, or you're going to overemphasize his humanity and overemphasize and you get it. And I'm sorry, but for those of you that like your theology all tied up in a bow, beyond a few major markers, it's incredibly difficult for us to even guess how Jesus of Nazareth conceived of himself as Messiah, as God the Son. And though for an eternity past, he knew of this moment. He, he knew when he would be in this moment to decide to go to death. In his conscious 33-year-old humanity, this is shaky. And it's completely overwhelming. Because it's not just torture and death as if that wouldn't be cause enough for agony. This is separation. It's a removal of father from son, who from eternity had enjoyed a relationship unlike any of us could ever imagine. It's the crushing, suffocating weight of the sins of the entire world. All those flaws of character, those lapses of judgment, those moments of weakness that we excuse in ourselves so easily, they are nothing so trivial. They will rip Jesus apart from his Father. And they drive the beautiful, perfect Son of God to his knees with the agony of a wrestler who is being overcome. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Though everything has been pointing to this moment, Jesus is now weighed down by the sin of his rebellious creation and he asks his father if there's any other way that this can be accomplished. The season of Lent reminds us that this is the result of our sin. The agony of Jesus, the unbearable heaviness of sin that leads to his death, so horrifying that he pleads for it to be taken away from him. But notice that Jesus' prayer is flanked by, if you are willing, and not my will, but yours be done. Luke has already described for us in the past what the posture of prayer is in a devout Jewish person. They stand up. They stand and they look towards heaven. But here, Jesus bends his knee as a representation of his willingness to bend his will to his fathers. And Jesus achieves obedience through persistent prayer, a prayer so intense that he sweats like an athlete in the fight of his life. And the Father responds, not by giving him a way out, but by strengthening him to accomplish the will of the entire Godhead. And it is this moment this act that is the seedbed for the most of the rest of the New Testament. The writers of the New Testament tell us over and over again that Jesus, God the Son, submitted himself, humbled himself, emptied himself, and went to death. And despite what the detractors of the Christian gospel would have to say, it's important to note, at the center of the entire world's story is not a violent, angry God taking out his frustration on a meek, timid son. It is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, submitting. Submitting. Could there be a more ungodly concept? Giving up your rights? Giving up your life? 
How weak. How pitiful. What foolishness and failure. How could you possibly believe in a God like that? It would take a miracle. It would take a man rising from the dead for anyone to follow a God who could cloak himself in weakness like this. If you have not been able to believe in a God like this, come and talk to me after the service. Find one of our leaders and ask us what it means to follow this kind of God. We would love to talk with you more about it. But if you have been made, made alive to this God, you have been called to follow this God, then brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God shows the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Friends, if this is how God really is, if this moment of Jesus in the garden reveals to us the depth of how he chooses to act in our world, what else would it mean to follow him? Of course we will submit to one another. Of course we will give up our time and our money. We'll give up our career objectives. We'll give up our need to be respected, our need to be right. We'll submit to one another in community groups, in our Bible studies, in our times of service, our homes, our families, and our friendships. After we have seen God on his knees in the garden, sweating in agony over the horror of our sin that he bore in his body, after we have seen the God of all that is submitting himself to death for our sake, how can we go on arguing about who's greatest? The temptation faced by each of us is to remain strong in ourselves, to bend others to our ideas of what is right, to fight our way up, and as the darkness closes in around us, we will simply sleep with sorrow. Now is the time for us to wake up, to join hands with one another and to dive down in prayer that God's will would be done in our lives, in our families, in our church, our city, and our world. And as we do, he will strengthen us to take up our cross and follow Jesus in submission into the places of darkness and death. In a moment, we're going to come to this table and you will have an opportunity to head back to this corner and be prayed for. And this is a reminder that going about God's will in this world is to invite trouble and suffering unlike anything we could ever imagine. And prayer is the only way that we can persist in obedience to actually go about the will of our Father as we saw in the life of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, what you have called us to be is not easy. You have called us to take up our cross, to envelop ourselves in the death of your Son. And it brings us life, it brings us joy, it brings us peace, insurpassable. And yet, we find in this world trouble, and we are very tired, and it's because we do not come to you in prayer. I ask, as we come to your table, that we would do so in a spirit of submission as we see in our beautiful Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Amen.